Hey, if you need a Bible tonight, um, go ahead and raise your hand. We have Bibles available for you. We'd love to have the, the Word in your hand tonight. We'd love to, to give you the opportunity to, um, to see the Scriptures in front of you. So if you need one, there's no shame. Um, raise up your hand and, and you can have one of those. And, and truly, if, if you don't have a Bible, this is, this is our gift to you. We want everyone to have one. So feel free to take it. We're going to open to the book of Luke, chapter 17 tonight. Invite you to do that right now. I feel like I should get this out of the way. I am wearing a splint on my finger. Yes, my middle finger. And um, it's lame. I realize that. I realize it's awkward looking, but uh, Doc orders, I have to wear it. I don't really want to talk about it, but I'm going to. So here's what happened. I'm, I'm serving my family faithfully, doing the dishes. You see where this is going. And um, I reached my hand into the sink, and um, I didn't know this, but at the time, there was the Ninja Blender blade in the, do you know what I'm talking about? It's also doubles as like a Viking war weapon. You know what I'm saying? It like, it defeated me with a crushing blow. And, um, and that's where we're at. That's all I have to say about it. I lost the battle. I have to wear this. It's uncomfortable. It is my middle finger, which I will try to not, you know, awkwardly wave at, at anybody. But now you know. Um, if you've been with us for a while, um, you know that we're in a series called Living Church. And what we're doing together on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings as a community is we are discovering um, what are the traits of health for a living church? What is a living church committed to? What is it focused on? What is it centered on? For us, if you've been here for a while, you know that, that we believe that a living church needs to be centered and focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And not just any version of him, because there are certainly many versions, but we are uniquely focused and centered upon the Jesus of the scriptures as he's revealed to us through God's word. We find him to be at the center of, of the biblical story, but also that he's at the center of our church community. And we've also seen that there is a truth that a living church possesses, and that truth is the gospel the gospel is our truth. It's what we're proclaiming. It's the good news that we are proclaiming to all people. I love this slide. We saw this last week. Can we put that up there? The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ proclaimed in the context of the kingdom mission of Christ is the living gospel of Christ. This is the life center of a living and healthy church. Cross resurrection and kingdom. This is how we think through the gospel and what God is doing in the, in the world and what the good news of that is. It's Jesus's church. The gospel is his truth. We proclaim it. But did you know that a living church has a first and foremost response to both of these things? The reality of Jesus and, and the good news of the gospel that is about him we are actually called to a certain and specific and unique kind of response in light of that. That response, we believe, is gratitude. The third trait of a healthy church is gratitude. And so that's what we're going to look at and discover tonight. 
And that word gratitude may be surprising to you on a number of levels. Maybe you have another Bible word that you're thinking of. You're typing up an email for me to send out to me in just a few minutes. But we believe that that's the right word. We believe that the entirety of scriptures points to um, gratitude as a response to what God has done and who he is. And we just sung about that for the past you know, 15 minutes. We, we were singing and declaring that aloud. But, but the truth is, and we have to be able to say this, is that's incredibly hard to do. There's a lot of bad news out there. There's a lot to be sad about. There's a lot of brokenness. If, if you were here last week, you saw images of the refugee crisis in Myanmar, uh, where over 500,000 refugees are fleeing for their lives. And that refugee crisis is not even the biggest one in the whole world. There's infinite amounts of brokenness in our world, and we see it in our own country. We've seen over the past couple months the devastation of, of flooding and these storms that have swept through southern states, wrecking havoc on homes and lives. Just a couple weeks ago, perhaps the largest mass shooting in, in United States history happened in Las Vegas. You know, and this, this one is a little bit close to home for me, but maybe per, for over the past week you've heard that there are uncontained fires burning through Northern California. The, the town, Santa Rosa, that has been on the news a bit this week, which is really rare that a town like Santa Rosa would be on the news, it's been on the national news, it's actually my hometown. It's the town that I grew up in. My wife and I met there. We, um, we went to high school there. I proposed there. We got married there. It's our hometown, and it's, it's literally burning uncontrollably right now. This is a picture from, my, from my, one of my best friends he took. I, I called him to see, um, to see how he's doing. Uh, actually, I texted him. I said, hey, man, how are you doing? What, I know that the fires are burning. And, and I said, what's it like there right now? And then he sent me this picture. And I said, where are you? And he said, this, I'm standing across the street from my house. This is, this, is, this is what it looks like now. This is what it's come to. You know, I've been to his house dozens of times, many times over the years, and it's unrecognizable. And for miles, this is the case. There's a lot of brokenness in our world. There's a lot to be sad about. Not even to mention the anxiety that many of us feel in our hearts and in our minds. Not even to mention the, the, the sickness and health issues that many of us are plagued by or our loved ones are. There's, there's a lot um, to be sad about. And here we are tonight, and we're going to talk about gratitude. And the question is, is why? Why are we going to talk about that when there's so much brokenness in the world? And what I want to say is that we're going to talk about a, a unique kind of gratitude tonight. It's a gratitude that is willing and able to embrace the brokenness that is in the world that's clearly seen, but it's also a kind of gratitude that would transcend the brokenness of the world because it's an eternal and everlasting hope that we're grateful for. And so that's what we're going to discover tonight. I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, as we open your word tonight, we are asking that we would not just be informed about you, but that we would be transformed by you. The scriptures that we read that, that point to Jesus, we, we, we pray that as we read and as we listen, as, as we engage, that we would 
become more like Christ in these moments. We'd see his heart and we would follow him along the way that is everlasting life. Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Luke 17, starting in verse 11. Let's read. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Do any of you have the Jesus Storybook Bible? This is kind of like a, like a parent moment. I hate to split the room here. But do you know what I'm talking about? The Jesus Storybook Bible? Just a quick nod if you've read it. It's, it's amazing. I love it. It's the Bible of choice in the Johnson household. It's what I read to my kids. And don't judge me if you read to your kids like the Greek New Testament or a study Bible. We're doing the best we can. I've got a two-year-old who's running around breaking everything and headbanging, and I'm trying to read him the word. I believe that it's one of the things that, that God has called me to do as a dad is to immerse my family, my kids with the scriptures so that they can see Jesus. But admittedly, I'm a manipulative person, so I very carefully choose passages of scripture. You know what I'm talking about, moms and dads. It's like we're sitting around um, and all of the kids are doing whatever's right in their own mind and whatever they want to do. And then later on in the day, I say, you know, let's sit down and read like the Tower of Babel or Noah and the Ark and see what happens when people do things their own way. You know, it's, it's incredibly manipulative, but I got to read them the Bible. And so this is what I do. And if I, I scoured it and, and found that this story is not in the Bible, and not in the storybook, Jesus' storybook Bible, which is incredibly disappointing to me because I would use it nightly almost, right? I just imagine sitting around the table and, and my children, my offspring are complaining about the food that their mother and I have made them. More likely their mother has made them the dinner, but I do the dishes uh, unsuccessfully, apparently. <laughs> It's a challenge. I'm just trying to serve. But they're complaining about the food that they don't like, and then, and then the chaos ensues, and people start crying. And then I'd open the word and say, oh, let's learn a little lesson about gratitude, kids. This is how I would treat this passage. And, and maybe this is how you've treated this passage, if you've read it before, that it's just a simple little message about being thankful. Well, I think it's a lot more than that. I think it's deeper than that. I think that the Lord has something to show us really powerful in that. My sweet wife, a couple of weeks ago, asked me what um, passage I'd be preaching on out of gratitude. And I was like, Luke 17. And she goes, really? That's the best you can come up with? Like this story? It's so obvious. She goes, you could just read the story and walk off the stage. And maybe you're wishing I would do that. But we're going to tonight. Tonight there's a plan. We're going to move slowly through these scriptures, these precious words 
um, that, that point us to Jesus. And I think we're going to discover some great things about the kind of gratitude that God is calling us to. I love, I love the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke's an amazing storyteller. In fact, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know that um, he, is, he opens it by saying that he has gone to great lengths to ensure that he's gotten all of the facts. He starts his gospel by saying, I've checked all the sources. If you don't believe what I'm writing here, you can go ask the folks that I interviewed about this account of, of, of who Jesus was and, and, and what he has done and what he is now doing in the world. Luke's gone to great lengths to make sure that he's gotten his story right. But we would be misled to think that he's only concerned with precision or accuracy. Luke is giving us great insight and detail, not just what Jesus did, but actually the way of Jesus. And so when our passage begins in verse 11, which we'll put up on the screen, and it says that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, there's a lot right there. Jerusalem is, is, is the end zone for Jesus's mission. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus declares that he is setting, resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem where he will be crucified, where he will hang on a cross, where he will begin to fulfill his mission in the world. So when we see this and when Luke is, is opening this passage with those words, we know that everything from then on is meant to be thought of as pointing us to the cross of Jesus. So this passage that we're in right now um, is uh, this, this phrase that we start with, on the way to Jerusalem is telling us that this is a gospel passage. This is a passage about Jesus moving towards the cross, and we ought to pay attention to that. So it says that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, but then it goes on to say, we'll throw that verse back up on the screen. It says that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and it says that he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Even this is something that's very important for us to see and to understand. Galilee is the place where Jesus' ministry was launched. It's a place where he'd experienced great success. A lot of his followers came from there. Galilee was a place where things went well in Jesus' ministry. But Samaria was a place where Jesus experienced rejection. There was challenges. If you've studied um, anything about the culture in uh, first century Palestine, you know that there was a great tension between um, Samaritans and Jews. Samaritans were a part of a tribe of Israel that had, in some ways, defected. They had intermarried with other cultures and other nations, and they'd begun to accept and worship their gods. And so the religion of Samaria was, was something like Judaism and everything else. And for Jews, they, they believed that the, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They believed that they were idolaters. And so there was this great tension between them. And then our story starts by announcing that Jesus is walking right in the middle. And it's code for us that Jesus is saying, I'm inviting people from all parts of the world, from all cultures to receive me and the good news about me. So that's where we're at. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's walking through. Verse 12 tells us this. It says, as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. Now these lepers are on the outskirts of town. 
They're standing at a distance. It's not just information. What, what we're learning here is that, and what we're seeing is that there's a group of people that weren't allowed to be inside the city walls. They weren't allowed to live inside the village. And so we shouldn't imagine Jesus standing in the middle of the village. We should imagine him approaching a village and there's a group of people that were probably 50, 60 yards away standing from a distance because there were laws that said they couldn't come any closer than that. Leprosy was a, was a word that described a, a multitude of, of different skin diseases that people experienced and were inflicted by in the ancient Near East. And um, having leprosy meant a couple of things that were significant. It, it meant, as, as we see, that um, locationally somebody wasn't allowed to live inside the city walls, but it had relational implications too. It would mean that a father was no longer allowed to live in his home. It would, it would mean that um, someone who was an employee would no longer be allowed to work in the field that they had spent so much time learning and growing in. So it has all these implications socially and culturally. If you had leprosy, you were on the outskirts of town. And perhaps even worse than that, if one was a leper, there was deep religious implications with that as well. Many considered that someone with leprosy was under a divine curse. Um, somebody that had leprosy was not allowed to worship in the temple, wasn't, wasn't allowed to experience the religious life that many desired to in their cultures, all kinds of different cultures. If you were a leper, you weren't allowed to worship with your people. And so these, the, this is the crew of people that Jesus comes upon as he's walking along the way to the cross. This is who he finds. And verse 13 tells us this. It says that they lifted up their voices to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's a bold request. It's probably, it's, it, they're probably yelling it just from a distance standpoint. It's, Jesus is, is off in the distance and, and they're crying out to him, calling out to him, Jesus, have mercy on us. The word that they use to describe Jesus tells us a lot about what they believed about him. They call him master. All throughout the book of Luke, the word master is used to describe Jesus as one with miraculous powers. Each time somebody refers to Jesus in this way, in, in, in this gospel account, it is a person who is calling out to Jesus, not for money, not for um, anything other than his miraculous intervention in their lives. We can imagine this longing that they experienced. And also we can see that they have great faith. Jesus is way out there. And they know and they believe. Maybe because, maybe some of them are from Galilee and they've seen what Jesus can do. Maybe some of them are from Samaria and maybe they've just heard about what Jesus is able to do. But every single one of them calls out to Jesus for mercy, for healing. And they believe that he can do something. Here's the way Jesus responds in verse 14. It says, when he saw them, he said to them, or maybe he yelled to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. I like, 
I like compassionate Jesus a little better than this. It sounds very like just like informational. They're calling out. We, we can hear their just the deep cries of their hearts for healing. And Jesus responds and says, go to the priest. And, and we won't quite understand what that means and what Jesus is getting at unless we understand a little bit about what the role of the priest actually was. It was a multifaceted role. The priest in, in this culture was, was um, certainly a religious leader, certainly someone who had religious authority, someone who might lead worship services. But also the priest was kind of a healthcare consultant and a purity inspector. If somebody would, would claim to have been healed or, or have gotten over some kind of sickness, before they could enter back into the place of worship, a priest would have to make sure that they were well. It was the priest's role to, to, um, to give them that right back into the place of worship, which was really at the center of life for people in this time. And so Jesus is saying almost strategically, just go show yourself to the priest. And I love what it says happens after that. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. All 10 of them respond in faith. And there's kind of like a really great lesson in there, isn't there? It's like Jesus called, they call out for healing and Jesus gives them instructions and, and, a, and a way to obey and everyone responds Luke's the only gospel writer that includes this story, and, and it could almost just end here. It could almost just be over, and we could say, that's a great little lesson, and, and Jesus is awesome, and they responded in faith. But the story is going in a, in a unique, different direction. And there's a break here. And I think we're allowed to imagine what it was like for these ten after they'd received a clean bill of health. We don't know where they go, so we can only kind of speculate. Maybe some of them would, would uh, have run back to their families. Maybe some of them would have um, went back to their employer and said, hey, can I get that job back? The, the priest said I'm well. We don't know exactly where they went, but I, I do believe that probably many of them went to a place of worship because they could finally experience worshiping God in, in the way that they had longed to do. This was now something that was offered to all of them. We shouldn't imagine that any of them were just nonchalant about it and just moved on with their lives. Now, we've heard the story, so we, so we know kind of where Jesus is going with this. But I think if we read it really simply, we just imagine that they're off like playing golf or something now. And I doubt that's the case. They've been ostracized so significantly that their whole life has been altered. And then the story has this break. And then we're introduced to one of them. And he will become really the, the, the main character of, of the rest of our story. In verse 15, it says this. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This story has a lot of different surprises in it. And if we slow down, we'll begin to see that. There's, there's surprises all throughout the story. But, but the least surprising thing of the story is that this person is praising God. 
This is the most expected thing that one would do, was that they would worship God, that they would give thanks to God. The scriptures tell us this all throughout. Uh, Psalm 107, which is an amazing psalm, you should read it sometime, is a psalm about God's deliverance of people. And in verse 20 and 21, the psalmist declares this. It's a beautiful passage. It says, he, and this is Yahweh, the God of Israel, sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So in our story, there's, it's not surprising that this individual would be praising God. But what's surprising in the story is that he has come to praise God. He has turned and come to praise God, and he's at the feet of Jesus. That's what would have taken this uh, first century reader or someone who was there to witness the story. That's what would have taken them by surprise. Not that this person was, was, was thanking God, but that they came to the feet of Jesus to do that. Why would he do that? I love, I love this little insight in this verse. It says one of them, when he saw that he was healed. One of the lepers was able to see what had actually happened. He had eyes, he had vision to see what God had done in him and for him. And this led him not to the temple, not back to his home, but first and foremost, it led him to the feet of Jesus. The Samaritan is the only one who's come back. We know that. The reality is, is that he was able to see the giver in the gift. And even more than that, He's able to see that there is only one appropriate location for worshiping and thanking God, and that location is at the feet of Jesus. It's not at the temple. It's not at a temporal religious structure or at um, some kind of event. It's actually at the feet of Jesus. That's where he belongs. And so this Samaritan is actually teaching us what gospel gratitude is. It's adoration and worship at the feet of Jesus. And so the question for us tonight and as a community is, will we join him there? He knows where he belongs. He knows where his gratitude needs to be directed to. And the question for us tonight is, do we as well? There's another turn of the story. There's something more that we're supposed to see here and Jesus is about to make some comments about what happened. And I think what he has to say is quite profound. This is in verses 17 and 18. So you imagine that this former leper is at the feet of Jesus. And then this is what happens next. Jesus says, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So here's Jesus, he's, he's wondering aloud. He's asking these questions. Where, where are the others? As I started, as, as I read through this story, something came to mind and, and it, there's no other characters mentioned. Like none of the disciples are mentioned in this story. It doesn't, it doesn't make it clear that there's a crowd around Jesus. It, Jesus just says this. 
he just starts commenting on what happened. Jesus starts to ask, who? Is he asking the Samaritan? The Samaritan would be like, well, I'm here. Almost assuredly, the disciples are with him, but they're not mentioned. Probably if there was a miracle of this magnitude of 10 people being healed, probably the crowd that um, constantly is surrounding Jesus, um, there's probably a bit of a crowd forming, but none of those folks are named. And I think what Luke is doing is, is he's inviting us into the story because Jesus is asking us this question. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and to give praise to God at my feet except for this foreigner? As I mentioned earlier, we don't know the backgrounds of, of all of the other nine um, who'd been healed. But we know a little bit about this guy. This is he was a Samaritan. He's referred to as a foreigner. Now, the word foreigner is it's actually a derisive term. It's, it's, um, it's the kind of term you would use to um, kind of angrily talking about maybe somebody from a, from a particular culture that you don't appreciate or someone from a particular background that you don't like. This is the kind of word that maybe the religious elite would use about someone like a Samaritan who's considered a, a half-breed. Unworthy. A Samaritan would be someone who's considered as they just don't get it. They don't just they just don't get the things of God. Jesus isn't being cruel to the Samaritan. He's commenting to whoever's looking that the person who's least likely in your mind to understand what I'm doing is the only person who's come back to worship me. And that question just hangs in the balance. Where? Are the other nine? And then the question comes to us, where are we? Jesus is, is, is talking to all of us. Maybe some of you sitting in this place, you resonate with the Samaritan. You clearly are aware that you're lost and you have been found in Christ. You're clearly aware that you need healing and that only Jesus can offer it. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe there's some of us that have um, seen who Jesus is and what he's done and we've simply just moved on to other things. Jesus is asking this question to each one of us. Where are you? Not only is, is, is it important to consider who is Jesus talking to, but I think it's important to to ask the question, what is Jesus feeling as he asks these? As he asks this, where are the other nine? We don't always ask that question about Jesus in, or in the scriptures when we encounter him. I think he's feeling something. Perhaps it's anger. Maybe Jesus is, is feeling that deep disappointment. Perhaps he's frustrated. Maybe he's feeling great sorrow. In just a few chapters, Jesus will weep over the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps he's sorrowful. Maybe, maybe he's feeling relief. At least one came back. We aren't given any of the answers to those questions. And the story 
is not as neat and tidy as we would want it to be. And maybe that's why it's not in the Jesus Storybook Bible. What happens at the end of the story is, is, is amazing. This, this Samaritan that's come to the feet of Jesus to worship him, at the end of the story, let's put up the, last, the very last verse. Um, verse 19, Jesus says this to him. He says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's a great phrase that's in there. It's the word, um, it's a great word in there. It's the word is sozo. And Jesus is saying, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. So this person who has seen who Jesus is and what he can do has come back to Jesus to worship him at his feet. And Jesus is saying, salvation has come to this person. The greatest thing possible has come to this person. And it's amazing. And we should celebrate that. But still we have Jesus' question. What about the other nine? And then the story ends. And we're forced to consider what are the implications of this. I know you like three-point sermons, so I'm going to give you three implications. And then we'll end with a call. This is what I really believe that God is speaking to us as a community today that we should embrace, that we can see in this story. This is God's word. The first is this. Faith is incomplete unless it is expressed in gratitude. Consider the beginning of the story. How many of these 10 had faith? All of them. And how many of them responded to Jesus exactly how they were instructed to? Every single one of them. If the story is just merely about faith, then it would be confusing. But the reality is, is that faith isn't complete until it's expressed in gratitude. Until it's expressed in worship. The goal of faith isn't greater knowledge, it's worship. This is what Jesus is longing for. And some of us, I genuinely believe, some of us think that we have a faith problem in our life, but we might actually have a gratitude problem. Perhaps we've forgotten that that is what Jesus requires of us. That is what is expected of one who's received a gift. Faith is incomplete unless it is expressed in gratitude. And the second is this. Gratitude keeps us from losing the wonder of our salvation. Gratitude isn't just a, a nice feeling. It actually protects us from losing our sense of what God has done in our life. And that's why we're here tonight, by the way. I don't know if you know why you came here, but this is why we're here. So that we don't lose the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. The Samaritan leper is able to see what Jesus has done for him. And that's what we rehearse and practice every Sunday night. We come and we see and we remember. We tell the story of Jesus, of, of who he is and what he's done. We're not, going to, um, we're not going to graduate from that. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't move on from trait number three. It's what we're doing all the time. It's what God is calling us to do. The third is this. 
And I think that this is a bit of an answer to what the question that Jesus is asking for when he says, where are the nine? And, and it's this. Jesus is longing for a grateful community. And I think that gets at what he's feeling at the end of the story. Jesus is, is, is glad that, that there's one here, but his intention is to build a community of gratitude. His intention is to, to form a, a people who will live in a broken world with a gratitude that can actually change it. A, a little bit of faith can change your life, but Jesus is telling us with a grateful community, he can change the world. And so that's what we're invited into tonight. You know, we, we, we rarely talk about what Jesus is expecting of us. You know, we, 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 we have this idea that Jesus, Jesus loves and appreciates every single thing that I do. And um, this story teaches us that Jesus does have an expectation of us. Jesus is actually longing for something from us. And it's that we would fall at his feet throughout our whole lives in adoration and worship of him. How do we come to know who God is? It's at the feet of Jesus. It's in worship of him. So there's a call tonight. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Let's stand in this, in this space and let's follow the lead of this Samaritan my encouragement to you tonight as you do that is to give thanks. To give thanks to, to Jesus for all that he's done, for his great goodness in our life, and we'll worship and sing to him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we are and hope to be increasingly more aware of all that you've done. We want to respond like this man has responded and realize that the first and foremost thing that you are longing for from us is our gratitude. It's our thankfulness. It's our worship. This is the kind of community that you're calling us to be, that you're leading us into. We want to follow you, Lord. We admit that we, we are so often prone to wander away from gratitude because we're trying to find our hope in something else, Lord. But we thank you that we have this moment tonight and each Sunday to come and gather for worship and thanksgiving. And these moments, Lord, are, are meant to remind us that throughout all of our lives, we should live in a constant awareness of what you've done for us. That's, that's what we hope to do, and so that's why we practice that here. So we pray that you would um, continue to grow us into a grateful community. We're excited to, to learn more about what that looks like over these next uh, couple weeks, Lord, but we believe that you will lead us, and we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, everybody said.